I wonder how many of us in here have um, ever thought about what we would want our last words to be. Now, I don't know how you prepare for that other than have them ready to, to say at any moment, but maybe a better way to think about it would, what would you want people to remember after you were gone? Now, I have thought about that, and uh, I have put those words on my tombstone so that one day when my kids or others passing by the tombstone, that there would be a, a word there for them, and, and especially, you know, my family, I would want them to know. And, and what's chiseled on my tombstone is P.S. colon, Eight or PS eight four colon one zero PS eight four one zero. Anybody know what that stands for? Sounds like it's in the Bible, but it uh, it says better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And and I have tried to drill that into my kids that they would be not grieving for me, but celebrating. Because better is one day in your courts, O oh Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. And, and I think it took for at least a couple of them. Because when my son uh, bought a motorcycle, it came with a plaque that they would engrave anything on it that, that he would want, had to be sent away, and that it would fit right on the handlebar of his motorcycle. Now, most people put their name and address in case the motorcycle is stolen. But right there on that plate, as he drives that bike, it's PS84 colon 10. And uh, I also, I've just given you the passwords to most of my kids' computers. Uh, and so that, uh, and some of my because it, it's one of those things I want them to know. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Now, we have, as a church, been for almost two years going through every book of the Bible, 66 books of the Old Testament, week by week. And then we are at 66 books of the Bible, 39 of the Old and 27 of the New. And I loved it when Mike said a couple weeks ago, we're on the back nine. And uh, actually... Today, we're on the back five. We're, we're headed for home. Uh, four more Sundays after this, and we uh, will have preached every book of the Bible. But we are on this, uh, the back end of the New Testament. And scholars believe that even though this particular book in its first John does not come at the end of the list, the book of Revelation does, that this actually was his last letter. His last letter. And so what is it that he would want, wanted the church to know? But more importantly, what is it that he wants us to know in this last letter? And uh, before we go any further, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want all that you have for us today. So as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what your Holy Spirit does best. Take words that are written on a page and write them on our heart that transforms us to be more like you. And if there would be anything that would hinder that happening, 
I pray that you would remove it, for we've come to see Jesus and to be taught by Jesus. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, there is no question as to who wrote the, the letter or the book of 1 John. Because there were people who were alive long after John that just said, yes, the apostle John wrote this. Now, what you need to do, know, a couple things about the apostle John. John had a brother named James. John and James were rascals. They were uh, fishermen. They were earthy people. Jesus had a nickname for them because they were loud and boisterous. And he called, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. So there was always a mess happening around these two brothers. They were good friends with uh, Peter and Andrew, again, in the same kind of fishing village, in the same kind of fishing area. And, and so they were four of the disciples, but James and John were the ones who, um, well, John was quick-tempered and... Uh, they argued with, with everybody. And life was about them. And Jesus calls them. Now, the year that this letter is written is somewhere in the after 90 AD. Jesus Christ was crucified around 33 AD. So he is the last living apostle that was with Jesus. And um, it's now been almost 60 years, and a lot has uh, been thought about and changed in the way people thought about Jesus. But what you need to, to realize is that Jesus made this huge impact on John's life. Now, John was difficult. There was one time Jesus sent him to a village to kind of prepare for Jesus' arrival. And the village said, we want nothing to do with you and your Jesus. And they probably spit on him. And so he comes back to Jesus. He's hot under the collar. If he had a collar, he's hot under the robe. Anyway, and he says, Jesus, can we call down fire on these folks and burn them up? So that, that's kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction that he has. And here's the surprise. Of all the apostles, when it's all said and done, he is known as the apostle of love. Now, some would say, no, no, that's Paul, because he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, and it's done at every wedding. Love is patient, love is kind. No, John surpasses Paul in understanding what it means to love people. So how does somebody go from wanting to call down thunder and lightning and burn up cars that cut in front of him on the road or horses or donkeys that cut in? How, well, how is it that he gets to be from somebody who's so broken and angry to being known as the apostle of love? There's a radical change that happens in his life in his biography of Jesus known as the Gospel of John. The change comes the night that Jesus takes off of his, his robe and washes the disciples' feet. 
after that moment. John calls it, Jesus showed us the full extent of his love. Now you would think the full extent of Jesus' love would be when he's on the cross. But for John, it's when Jesus washed his feet. Because from that moment on, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Now we know that Jesus loved them all. But when you write your own gospel, you can call yourself who you want. But the, the thing that I want to draw your attention to is up to that point, he didn't refer to himself like that. Until after Jesus humbled himself and washed his feet. It gave him enough courage to stand at the foot of the cross, the only apostle to do that with Jesus' mother and a couple other women. Everybody else ran, but John was not afraid in his love for Christ, to publicly say, I'm with him. What was it? What was it that happened to him? What, what did he see? And then what does he want us to know? Now, in the 60-some years between the death and resurrection of Jesus and his writing of this, people got some funny ideas about who Jesus really was. Some say he was just a spirit. He, he, when he walked, he didn't leave footprints because he was holy. Others would say, well, he was a guy, and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him, but when he got arrested, the Holy Spirit left because certainly God could not die. And so all of a sudden, people are saying he never really existed as God. He was just a nice person or a spirit, and they thought he was a person. And so John can't believe it. It's like the other night I was watching uh, some kind of a special on the German concentration camps and on Auschwitz, and, and, and there was one person who they were interviewing who was a, a teenager, a, a little boy, and, and lost his whole family, and he had the tattoos. And, and one of the questions at the end of the program after he told his story is, what do you say to people who say it never happened? That's just a story made up. Jewish folks were not put in incinerators. And he said, there's almost nothing you can say. He said, but I lived it. So what you get in this letter that John's writing, he's writing to all these folks that say Jesus was a myth. He never really existed. Now, as hard as that is to believe, at Princeton Seminary back in the 19, late 1980s, we had a professor who taught Hebrew who didn't believe that Jesus ever existed, but was a nice thing for people to believe to keep them in line. This was a seminary professor at a Presbyterian seminary. It, it boggled my mind. So John is saying, okay, let me tell you how I know Jesus existed. So let's look at the text. 1 John, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too might have fellowship with us and indeed fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. Now, what, what jumps out at you? What is John trying to say? Uh, we'll go to the next slide. Now, here, and, and this was going to have yellow behind it so you could really read it, but here's what it says. That which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands... And then he goes on again, just the, the next sentence, which we have seen, which we have heard. We, um, and, and he just, it's been manifest. He's been manifest. We touched him. We ate with him. We, we, I, I put my, at, at last supper, I leaned up against his body. He was real. But the reason that John is writing is in these other words that you won't be able to read that come up in blue. We are testifying to this. We are proclaiming this. We are proclaiming. We are telling. We are writing. The idea of this letter is to say, Jesus was real. Jesus was real. He's not a myth. We've seen him. We've touched him. And he says in this letter, he brought a new way of life to me. I was lower in snake hips. That's a translation of the Greek. I was a scum dog. I, I was about me. And there's two worlds that he lifted up. You can live in the world of the kingdom of God, or you can live in the world of this world. And they are radically different. In the kingdom of God, there is light and life. In the kingdom of this world, you will find darkness and everything ends in death. In the kingdom of God, there's truth and there's love. In the kingdom of this world, there are lies and there are hate. And John is saying, I lived in this world and I encountered this Jesus. We touched him. We ate with him. We talked to him. We listened to him. And I want to tell you, his world is radically different. Radically wonderful. And Jesus makes a difference in my life. And he writes saying, he makes a difference in your life. But something gets in the way of that difference. And it's a little three-letter letter, three-letter word called sin. And John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. At 90 some years old, you can call everyone your little children. He called the church. I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, before you get hung up on this word that gets tossed around, sin just means 
in the Greek to miss the mark, not live up to who you are designed and called to be. Don't let this world drag you into darkness and lies and hatred. Don't miss the mark of what God has for you. And so I'm going to read from the message what he tells the church and you and me. Now, the message is a translation in a, in a, in a different, uh, a, a more clear language of the day. He says, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. We can get very much wrapped into what John was wrapped into. It's all about us. Don't get wrapped up into the whispers of the world and what the world holds out for life. For it squeezes out the Father. Practically everything world is this, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, and wanting to appear important. Now, if you were holding on to your King James Version, it would be called lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You, you want things to taste good. You want to look good, and you want everybody to think you're something. That's what this world invites you to do. He goes on to say, practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Now, this idea of sin... Most of us are familiar with it in one way or the other. Of all the books in the Bible, this book appears to be the most contradicting, confusing book when it or letter when it comes to understanding sin. Listen to a couple of the different texts that you would have read this week had you read this. John 1, 3, 9 to 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He, she, cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. If you're born of God, you cannot sin. But then he says in another chapter, in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then he says in 1 John 5, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Okay, John, what is it? Because it seems like right now you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Do Christians sin or not sin? No one who is born of God will continue to sin. But if we can claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. But if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us. What is going on? So I need your help. I'm going to give you a sin test, okay? 
So ready? You can't look around at what everybody else. Here's the question. I want to understand sin. And if you're a Christian, what do you believe this statement? Ready? Here's the first one. The first one is Christians do sin. If you believe it, raise your hand. Christian sin. Okay. 100%. We're, we're on board. We're, we're there. Okay. Next question. Christians will sin. Not only do they do, but they will. Anyone? Anyone? Pretty much everyone. Okay. We'll go on. Christians should not sin. Maybe half. Maybe half. Should not sin. Christians must not sin. Must. Christians do not sin. <laughs> Nobody. Fine. Christians cannot sin. <laughs> Kevin, maybe you're, you're maybe on the fence about that. John says, Christians do not sin, and Christians cannot sin. And all of you disagree with the word of God. I'm going to close in prayer. Pray for all of you. <laughs> How can he say that? See, this is where people take verses out of context. People misunderstand. They, they go, well, that's what the word of God says, so that's what I believe. And, and it leads to lots of guilt and lots of shame and lots of, I don't know what I'm going to do. Why does he say we cannot sin and do not sin? Well, you need to go to the Greek because the verb form is different in those two sentences. The verb form is in the present active tense or it's a participle. It means continuous action. So what John is saying is Christians do not continue to sin in the same sin over and over and over and over again. Christians cannot continue to sin over and over and over and over again. Christians... John is saying, will not habitually sin. Now, the Apostle Paul said, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. Who will save me from this? And what's the answer? Jesus. So how does it work? You see, I... I I took a snapshot of myself in a graphic way this morning, and uh, this, this is me, a few frills on the top, but uh, 
lots of sin inside. That's what that is. Actually, I took some out because I wanted to appear better than I did. Anyway, so this is, is me, and I have given my life to Jesus Christ. What does God do with the sin in my life? Well, I, I, you know, what I think for a long time is I grew up saying, thinking I'm supposed to take the big sins out. And so our faith is like becoming a better person by not doing the bad things that we do. And, and bit by bit, we're supposed to get the sin out of our lives. But the problem is, the more sin I get out, the more sin creeps back in. So I'm stuck. Now, some would say, what happens is Jesus on the cross takes all of our sins and we never sin again. Is that true? Not with me. So, is the Christian faith us just trying to get the big clods out of our life? How do we not continue to sin? And John tells us. He tells us that the more that we bring Christ into our lives through the reading of his word, through prayer, through being with other believers, the only way to get this dirt out and not come back in the way it would be would be if I were to continue to pour water into this and let the dirt flow out and be displaced by the water. And Jesus said, I am the living water. And, and so, my friends, John is telling us to be a disciple is not to go about trying to make our lives better by getting rid of the dirt. Because most of us would judge our Christian faith and life on what we're not doing anymore. Well, I don't drink that much anymore. I don't smoke that much anymore. I don't chew. I don't go with that many girls that do anymore. I'm a better person. I'm a better Christian. It was never meant to be that. You see, the only way for sin to be displaced in our life, the habitual sin, because this side of heaven, we will, we're imperfect. We will never be perfect. But we can be more like Christ. The more Christ that we would pour in, the more that he would displace those habits. It's what happened in John's life. He fell in love with Jesus. He couldn't get enough of Jesus. It's where we in the church miss the mark. Because we think if we only made our lives better, we would be better and Jesus would love us more. No, we can't do it on our own. It's why Christ came. 
And so the key to discipleship is not getting rid of the bad stuff in our life. It's getting more Jesus in to displace the bad stuff in our lives. It's what happened in John's life. It's called discipleship. One of my favorite songs is the song, Give Me Jesus. Give me Jesus in the morning. Give me Jesus in the afternoon. Give me Jesus in the evening. Give me Jesus in my last day because I need Jesus in my life to displace me and my sinfulness and my worldly ways. My friends, we are going to focus in this fall on discipleship. We're going to focus in on how do we get more Christ in so that he can change us from the inside out. You see, Christianity is not being a better person. It's being changed to be more like Jesus, doing things that Jesus would do. And do you know what John calls that? Love. In John, 1 John 3.16, he writes this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, to the kingdom. You see, when Jesus takes over, when you get more of Jesus in you, you begin to love people in a way that you have never been able to love them before because we get out of the way. And Jesus changes us to love as he loved. So we see people differently. We don't merely talk. We live it out in our lives. We empathize. We sympathize. We live out the character of God. Now, when John was old, they would bring him to church every Sunday. They would carry him on a chair every Sunday. They would bring him and People would wait. I can't wait. The last apostle, the one with Jesus. And he would say this. This would be his sermon. It was one sentence. Dear children, love one another. They would pick him up. They would take him home. The next Sunday, they would bring him and they would sit him down. And he'd say, people would wait. What's he going to say this day? Dear children, love one another. And they would take him home and do it. And then the next time of worship, they'd bring him, they'd wait, and he'd say the same thing. And the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And finally, somebody said, John, we love the length. <laughs> but is that all? And he said, dear children, love one another. 
that is enough. Those were his last words. That's enough. But it flowed out of Jesus becoming more in him and the love of Christ overflowing into the world and changing the world. He said, that is enough. You think about that. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want it to be so much more. But the disciple that you loved said, that's enough. Faith in you that overflows into loving everyone else. Is that enough? Open our eyes and our hearts to how you would have us live, reflecting the kingdom of God, displacing all the me in our lives and having it be more you. Oh, fill us, Jesus. Overflow in us. when we close our eyes in this world, people would say he or she loved well. And it made a difference. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. As you all leave this place, may you leave with uh, the Lord being the breath in your lungs to proclaim what you know to be true. May he overflow your heart in such a way that people experience it long before you have to proclaim it. I love that song. We hadn't even talked about what song, but you could have just heard that and go home. But uh, as you go, go in peace to love, serve, enjoy, and overflow him. Amen.